Well, I am going to share with you today um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. If you can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. We're just going to be looking at one verse, and really we're going to just be considering four words. And I believe that these four words should be the defining or definitive words for us as believers. It, it, this is really a call um, to the center of the Christian faith. A center that we can never afford to move too far from. In fact, it's a center um, which, if we have it right, will take care of the peripherals of life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, these words. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Say those four words with me. We preach Christ crucified. Let's say that together. We preach Christ crucified. All right, with that in your heart and in your mind, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you today, and I pray that by the guidance of your Holy Spirit, that you would open up before our minds um, these four words, four words that should define us as your people, Four words that should be the source of anyone who truly knows you, the source of their freedom. Four words that has the ability to bring down the strongholds of hell. Four words that remind us of the authority that has been granted to your church, which is your bride, for better or for worse. Four words that has the ability um, to transform the world. Four words that we're told that if you be lifted up, Jesus, lifted up upon the cross, you will draw all people unto yourself. And I pray this morning that as you are lifted up, as you are exalted, that we would decrease, that you might increase. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon me, that I would speak forth the truth of Jesus with conviction, um, in sincerity, with authority that can only come from you. I pray that you would give me a tongue of fire. And Jesus, we pray in the words of Samuel, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. We preach Christ crucified. The simplest and most ancient of human truths is that life is arduous, and it is a tragic struggle. We know that to be true. And I would argue as Christians, we know that even more so than those who are blind and dead in their sins and trespasses. And the reason that we know it more is because the world has never been kind to grace. It's never been favorable toward Jesus Christ. In fact, we are told specifically in the scriptures that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so everything that we believe, everything that we know about Jesus and the gospel, this defining reality that God so loved that he gave, this reality is one that grabs a hold of our attention at the beginning. But I have found as a shepherd and as a pastor that many drift from that center lose sight of the importance of coming um, each day to the cross and being reminded of the gospel because the gospel isn't the starting point of the Christian life and then you move on to deeper 
more spiritual truths. But the gospel should be the center of everything that we do every day. And the fact is, is that if we want to be able to navigate the difficult waters of life, all the trials and tribulations that come our ways, as I was just sharing the anxiety that I experienced for eight months, what would I have done had I not had my life built upon the gospel? What would have happened to me? Honestly, I think I would have lost my marriage. I think I, think I would have fallen into such a place of despair that there would have been no recovery. But I held fast to a foundation that pulled me through that difficult trial. You know, the difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that we struggle less. It's that we, we struggle with a different foundation. And that foundation carries us through those trials. It's not like you put your faith in Jesus and all of a sudden life becomes easy. I would argue that this life actually might become harder. Jesus says, in this life, you will experience tribulation in this world. But be of good cheer for what? I have overcome the world. But we don't see the full evidence of that yet. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, there are two words that have primarily been the defining factors for believers for the last 2,000 years. You know what those words are? Disciple and pilgrim. Disciple and pilgrim. And as disciples, that means that we are called to be a people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We should always be in a growing, learning relationship. As pilgrims, we are a people who spend our lives going someplace. There's no static position for the believer. You're either moving closer to Jesus or you're moving further away from him. We're going to God. And the way in which we get there is by the way, which is his son, Jesus. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith? He's the beginning of everything for us. He's the path. Um, he's the guide on the path. Uh, he's the nourishment that keeps us healthy along the path. And essentially, he's the, the end goal. He's all that we're shooting for. The thing that makes heaven heaven is Jesus there. It's the beauty of the gospel. The problem is that we live in a world that is driven by what Gore Vidal calls a passion for the immediate and the casual. It's what we call instantaneous, instantaneous Christianity. Raise your hand, accept Jesus, get out of hell, get into heaven, and then live as you like. Jesus is Savior, but in absolute ignorance around the idea of Jesus as Lord. We seem to be more concerned with that initial act of faith and our entrance into heaven than we are with the life which we are called to live in between. And that's what I want us to think about today. What will sustain us in between? Isn't that a good question? Because this is a thing that has been blowing my mind as a pastor is how few people finish well. It breaks my heart. I watch believers fall into the same patterns of sin, drift from their faith, drift from their center, struggling up and down, up and down, some of them even drifting so far that they lose sight of Jesus altogether and denounce their faith. I've seen dear friends, friends that I did ministry with who have come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't there and that the gospel isn't true and all because they lost sight of their center. And so I want us today to ask the question, what will sustain us in our travel? That is, what will deepen our discipleship and bring clarity to our path as pilgrims? And the answer, of course, is keeping the gospel the center of everything. 
In fact, I would argue that we aren't preaching as preachers unless we preach the gospel. I would argue that we are not functioning as the church unless the gospel is the center of all that we do. If we have the center right, our peripherals will be taken care of. The church is not a place for prescriptive preaching. Seven steps to a better marriage. Six steps to a better job. The church is a place where we declare Jesus Christ as victorious over sin, death, Satan, and the world. That he came and lived the life that we couldn't live. That he, ascent, that he that, that qualified him for the death that he died. And the death that he died qualifies us today for the life that he lived 2,000 years ago. And all of that is proven because he rose from the dead. Because death could not keep him. But death swallowed life only to be swallowed up in the end by life. And so Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we sit here as a testimony, a continuum of 2,000 years of heritage, of faith, that says that faith in Christ transforms the person and brings the Spirit of God back into them so that they can once again enter into a right relationship with God. In this gospel, we preach Christ crucified is the thing that we need if we want to maintain in this in-between stage, between our initial uh, regeneration when we got born again to that point in which we will once and for all have tears wiped away, sin utterly removed, and that new body that awaits for us in an eternity with our Savior, we've got to figure out how to live well now. I believe that the call of Christ upon our lives is to enjoy heaven on the way to heaven. And we need to understand that the local church is literally an outpost of the kingdom of God. We are to reflect in part what is coming in the future in whole. It's like we're 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 like a little pointer to this lost world that says, "What you see here, this is just um, an introduction to what is coming that's going to come over the whole universe." And it's a powerful thing. So let's think about this. We preach Christ crucified. Four words. Four words that I would argue wield absolute authority. Four words that if we truly cling and live, we will find that it produces our long obedience in that same direction. So the first word, we. I love this one as a pastor. I really, really love this one. We. Just think about that word with me. Does Paul say, I preach Christ crucified? No, he doesn't. The first word in these four words is we, which means that every born-again believer, every child of God, has a part to play in the proclamation of the gospel to a lost and dying world. That is that the entire church preaches the gospel together. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the world will know that you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. So it's not this isolated thing where the preacher does the work in the ministry, the lay people come and watch us, entertain them, give us direct insight. The priesthood has been put away with by Jesus. You don't need me or Ted um, to get to Jesus. That's, that's something that is, is, has been proven false and faulty and damaging. Many of you sitting here today fell into that trapping, wrapped your life around cult of personality, built your faith upon the faith of another. You didn't play your role in being a part of a gospel-centered movement 
which happens in the local church. And the beauty of this is that every person in Christ has a role to play in the declaration of the gospel. Every one of us, 1 Corinthians 12, 20, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The beautiful picture that is painted for us throughout the New Testament, that we are bricks in a building, that we are members of a body, that we are branches in a vine. That each one of you has a a significant part to play in the preaching of the gospel. In fact, I noticed this dramatically at at Door of Hope. Um, When the church first started, we had so many new converts and there were so many people coming to, to just see what was happening. That when I would preach... Um, It was almost like the power was sucked out of the message by the fact that the people were mere voyeurs. They weren't participators. They were watching me to analyze whether, you know, my delivery was eloquent enough or the worship was entertaining enough or, you know, he's just kind of boring or he talks too long or he talks too short. You know, we have all these critiques and we really are spectacular um, as church connoisseurs. We, like, we treat church like drinking red wine. It's like, hmm, I, I sense the flavor of, you know. <laughs> but that's not what the gospel calls us to. And that's definitely not the sign of a healthy church. Ted and I were both talking about this yesterday, that our deep desire for our churches is that we want to break free from this entertainment-driven culture that is built on consumerism. It's not about what you get. It's about what you have the ability to participate in. And when that happens, the gospel comes alive. And, and I saw as, as people committed to Door of Hope. And then when I would preach, there was this sense that the whole body together was preaching this, this universal truth that, that yielded um, authority in such a way that we saw people from all over Southeast suddenly coming to Christ and hearing the gospel proclaimed and seeing the evidence of the gospel played out amongst God's people. And I no longer felt like the church, the, the responsibility of the church succeeding was upon my shoulders, but I saw that I was one piece in a family that was so sweet. And I believe that when hearts are knit together in sacrificial love and we see that the effectiveness of the gospel um, is through the authority of the church, not the individual. There is no Lone Ranger Christian. If you are not committed to a local body today, shame on you. I don't care what has happened in your past. I don't care if you've become disenchanted or disenfranchised. If you're part of the contingency that I'm seeming to reach right now in Portland, which we call the de-churched kids that leave the suburbs and their Christian upbringings to go to the city to make names for themselves. And they don't want anything to do with, with evangelicalism. You know, they'll, they'll say that, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I'm like, Jesus ordained the church as the primary means to make himself known. How can you hate the church? It's the bride of Christ. Let me tell you right now, you want to bring wrath out? One thing that might bring violence out on me is insult my wife. Don't test me on that because I'm really not that tough. I just, that's why. (laughs) Somebody walks at me, your wife. I'm like, all right, I was bluffing. I was bluffing. (laughs) But I don't think Jesus is bluffing. I think Jesus loves his bride, his unfaithful, blemished bride. And man, it is heartbreaking to see how unfaithful the bride can be at times. But that does not change the demand upon our lives to be committed to be committed. I know that many of you in this, in this area have gone through difficult times in the local church. Many of you have had your, your trust broken by your shepherd. And that is a heartbreaking thing. Ezekiel deals with that. God says, you shepherds have been 
horrible shepherds, and I'm going to remove you. I'm going to bring a good shepherd, the perfect shepherd. And that prophetic call was, was what humanity needed. We need the one shepherd, Jesus. The best that we can do as small as shepherds is be faithful to our own relationship with Jesus and keep it in check that we might inspire others to follow hard after him. But the bottom line is, is that as we are called into a relationship with him and through him with one another, and that relationship is one of simplicity and sincerity and singleness, evangelism together is where evangelism becomes powerful. So, who preaches the gospel? We. Plurality. Every one of us has a part to play in this powerful, life-transforming message. The second word that Paul uses is preach. And once again, this is a word that we don't think of ourselves as preachers. I mean, what does the word preach mean? But the, the word preach in the Greek simply means to herald. As I said, the the church, the local church is essentially a kingdom outpost of what is coming in whole. It's like God sets up these little outposts. We're ambassadors for Christ. Um, An ambassador doesn't, an ambassador to another nation doesn't define uh, the message that's given. He's sent with a message. And if he's not faithful to deliver that message, he's in big trouble. He goes as a representation um, uh, as a herald for the king or for the president or whatever. And you and I, all of us, are called to preach that idea of heralding. It's simply introducing, introducing the king to a lost world. Now, I like to think about this, uh, an illustration that the Lord has given me is, is as husbands, you know what it's like to take your wife somewhere and you're talking with someone that she hasn't met? And you forget to introduce her. Now, I happen to be married to a woman that is um, what I like to call gentle fury. Um, (laughs) If anyone knows Darcy, she's like the kindest, sweetest, compassionate woman. But she is a ferocious woman when she is crossed. Uh, She's, I mean, I cower behind her. When someone (laughs) angers her, she's just like, just unleashed like a sailor. It's insane. Um, (laughs) And nothing brings out the fury in my wife more intensely uh, than when I, when I uh, dishonor her by forgetting that she's next to me and introducing her to the people that are standing before me. Often the reason that we do that is because we don't actually know the people's names who we're talking to. <laughs> I'm like, I want to introduce you to my wife and say the name like under my breath. Darcy, this is Darcy. <laughs> But those few times, and it's only been a few times that I have forgotten to introduce Darcy, um, I have been reminded that, that this, this woman who's by my side, that I, I'm to honor her as my bride. And, and, to, and to, I want people to know her. I want her to be known because I love her more than any human being on the planet. I love my children. Oh, man, they mean so much to me. But my wife is going to be with me till I die. And I have to love her because... I have to pity her that she has to tolerate me for the next however many years. Um, and, and so this, this, this life partner, but is not Jesus meant to be an even more intimate relationship than even our, our spouse? I mean, honestly, if you love your spouse or your children more than Jesus, that's called idolatry. And the scriptures has pretty intense things to say about that. 
mean, the fact is, is that the human heart is an idle factory, and we recognize that. But it doesn't change the call upon our lives to be continually reminded that Jesus Christ is not distant or detached from his creation, but that he is intimately involved in our lives. He is with us. He is present. He is a God who is there. He is a God who is here. Isn't it funny? We always, even as preachers, we talk about him as if he's not here. We want to remind people that he's up there. But he's not. He's here. Jesus, you're right here with me right now. Would you think it's weird if I started talking to him instead of to you? Probably. Um, But essentially, if we would live with this awareness of his presence, it's what, even that little book, Practicing the Presence of God, it's one of the, the coolest little mystical books written about just this constant awareness, this need to be aware of Christ's presence in the believer's life. That's the whole essence of the Christian faith. It's what differentiates the gospel from every world religion. It said there's, there's many religions, but there's only one gospel. Why do we say that? Because the gospel is, is issuing forth this great declaration that God has actually entered into his own story, into his own history, into our story, that he has gone so deep that he has gotten underneath our sin and lifted us up out of the mire and given us new life and new hope. And this Jesus says, I will be with you till the end of the age. And so I say as heralds of this Jesus, that what we need to do is is picture yourself um, on a stage, and there's an audience before you. If we would think of our lives in terms of pulling back the curtain and hiding ourselves in its folds, that Jesus himself would be seen. That's the great call upon our lives. We preach we preach. Romans ten fourteen. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You want to keep your life moving toward the goal? You want to keep your heart um, full of wonder and adventure? Keep a solid awareness of Jesus' presence before you. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We preach, we declare, we herald, we introduce people to the king. Well, the third word is powerful, is directly connected to the last, is that we aren't heralding a ideology. We aren't declaring, you know, Uh, the gospel like vegetarianism, like a personal health choice, although it is healthy to follow Jesus. Um, But we preach someone. And I think that personality is is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Because we are made in the image of God, the proof that that, um, God is a relational being is the very fact that we are relational. The fact that God, the proof that God is a trinity one God revealed in three persons is based upon the fact that we're relational. God would not have made us relational unless he is not relational within himself. It's powerful, powerful truth, one that can blow your mind if you think about it too hard. But this great personality, the presence of a person, I would say that we're not preaching unless we're preaching Jesus. It's been said that Christianity is Christ. And if the preaching isn't centered around Christ, then we aren't preaching. And it's really important. 
Uh, when people talk about the gospel, nothing gets under my skin more than when I hear a preacher preach without ever using the name Jesus for the sake of being um, palatable for modern sensibilities, talking about God in this sort of ambiguous way. I, I hate that in worship music. If the name of Jesus is not declared in the song, yes, the Psalms are filled with songs without the name of Jesus, but we have an actually a fuller revelation. We have what's called the New Testament. Um, in the New Testament, it says that everything in the Old Testament is actually about Jesus. And we have the, the fortunate reality that we actually have someone that we can declare, a God with a name, Jesus, God with us. And this Jesus is entered into our story. The reason I love preaching Jesus is because Jesus is where I begin and where I end when I preach. I mean, people try to start asking me all these questions about whether or not they can trust the Genesis account based upon all the scientific evidences that are out there right now, or can we really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, or was there really a worldwide flood? I'm like, all I know is that Jesus is so beautiful that if he was not the son of God and he was merely the invention of man, I would have to worship the people who made him up because I've never come across anyone more compelling than him. Because in Jesus, I have a God who becomes relatable because he actually took upon my form, flesh and blood. And I love that about this personality that we're not just preaching God, we're preaching Jesus, which is the entrance to God. And when we preach Jesus, we're saying that, that God himself is human enough to relate to us and God enough to save us. It's the power of the gospel. So we preach this Jesus. That's why I love that phrase, this Jesus, that Peter uses in Acts. Notice that, that present tense, and it's still the present tense for us. What I have found is that people are being transformed by this Jesus, you know when the last revival was that took place in America? The real last revival? There's lots of self-proclaimed revivals. A lot of weird things going on out there in the name of Jesus that have very little to do with the cross or the gospel. But the last genuine revival, I would argue, is the Jesus movement. And, you know, if you're part of a Calvary chapel. Uh, Calvary was at the head of that. Um, and what's powerful about it is if you think about what it was called, <laughs> what made... It a revival is that it was a Jesus movement. It wasn't a Presbyterian movement or a Methodist movement or a Reformed movement or an Arminian movement. It was a Jesus movement. Sadly, we lose sight of that. Sadly, even non-denominations become caught up in peripheral issues. And we have to constantly keep ourselves in check and say, what is it at the end of the day at a about Is it about our eschatology, the rapture, when Jesus is going to come back, who's the Antichrist? Is it about whether we're Calvinist or Arminian? No. It's about this Jesus. He's the one that changes lives. Is good theology important? Absolutely. Is good ecclesiology, church government, is it important? Is what we believe about non-essential issues, does it matter? Yes, it matters. That's why there's a multitude of churches, churches to choose from. But at the end of the day, if it isn't centered around this Jesus, um, we're missing the mark. And, and we'll lose sight of the gospel. So we preach Christ's personality. E. Stanley Jones says this beautiful thing about Jesus. He says, in him we see what man is and how far we have fallen. In him we see what God is and how far we may 
rise. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord. Powerful. So the final word. I just want to camp out on this last one. Because this is an interesting one. We preach Christ crucified. Why crucified? I've often asked this question. Why the cross? Why not the resurrection? Why don't we put more emphasis on the resurrection? I mean, actually, we're told that conversion happens through confessing with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. So doesn't it seem like the gospel is actually more about his resurrection, not, not the cross? The cross is ugly. The, the cross is archaic. The cross is bloody. The cross is brutal. The cross reminds us of the brutality of man and the severity of God's judgment. The cross reminds us of, of our depravity. Let's focus on the resurrection. Or let's just focus on Jesus as a teacher, as a, as a, as a moral instructor, as one who can give us, give us the ways of God. But let me just tell you this, that if the gospel is the center of Christianity, I would argue that the cross is the center of the gospel. Because the gospel encompasses his life, his death, his resurrection. The cross encompasses those things. That's why we called our church Door of Hope. Door of Hope comes from that passage in Hosea. I will give her the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble as a door of hope. Achor becomes a picture in the Old Testament of Calvary itself. That in Joshua, when the sins of Achan are judged and him and his family are stoned in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. It's a place where sins were paid for, um, where judgment came. But then in, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 65, uh, Achor is mentioned again. I will cause um, my sheep. Uh, what is it? I will give my sheep. I remember. It's like I will give my sheep rest. Or, yeah, I'll give my sheep rest or peace in the Valley of Achor. So it becomes a place where peace is secured. And then in Hosea chapter um, 3, verse 15, it says, and I will give her the Valley of Achor as a door of hope. It becomes a place which is a door, an entrance into hope, an entrance into resurrection. But there is no resurrection until first there's death. It's called the good death. That's what baptism represents, is that you were being submerged into the death of Jesus and resurrected into the fullness of his life. And the cross, if we drain Christianity of the cross, we drain Christianity of its blood. It becomes lifeless because the cross is the great collision of God's love for a lost humanity and mankind's sinfulness and God's, God's means by which he does something about our sin. The cross is the place where we are reminded that we cannot save ourselves. The cross is the place that we are reminded that God so loved that he gave his only son. It cost God a lot to work out our salvation. It cost him a lot. And the thing is, is that people want to preach Jesus, but they leave out the cross because the cross is offensive. And it violates our rational sensibilities. But the bottom line is that we aren't preaching. I said before, we aren't preaching if we aren't preaching Christ. I would go further. We aren't preaching Christ unless we're preaching Christ crucified. And if we eradicate the gospel from the cross, 
we no longer have the gospel. Because the gospel, the central, the central theme of the cross, it reminds us that we are more jacked up than you can even imagine. And at the same time, you're more loved than you could ever hope for. That's the beauty of the gospel. The cross is that place in which Jesus, who lived that life that we could not live, went to a place in which he became the sin bearer. He took judgment upon himself, a judgment that you and I deserve. And he says, no, I'm going to hang here, Josh, as if I had lived your life, a guilty life, and I'm going to take the judgment of my father upon myself so that you can have access to the father And if you remove the cross, what do you have? What we have is we have a gospel without power. We have a gospel that can't actually change anybody's lives. I see this all over Portland. You know, all the churches that actually have people in them in downtown Portland are liberal churches that have eradicated Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They've eradicated Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they all they focus on is Jesus is a good moral teacher. And you know what I notice um, in, in those churches? Is that they're utterly dead and lifeless and hopeless. They're not changing lives. They're giving people a little bit of medicine to get them through another day. But Jesus wants to give us new life that will get us through eternity. <laughs> That's a powerful reality. Eternity. And see, Jesus wants you to live well. And he wants you to end well. And don't you want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And I believe that if we would do what Paul did, and we would cling to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we would recognize the costliness of forgiveness and the incredible generosity of God, and that, that God, while we were yet still sinners, his love for us uh, was there before we even trusted in him. If we would get this gospel, I, I really truly believe that we would be a people that out of us flows the generosity of Jesus the sacrificial willingness to lay our lives down for the good of others, as we just sang in that song, the willingness to be broken bread and poured out wine, the willingness to be the hands and feet. It's not just about what we say with our lips, guys. We preach Christ crucified means that our whole life, everything we do, the way that we are husbands, the way that we are fathers, the way that we are mothers, the way that we are wives, the way that we are children, the way that we are workers, students, Whatever it is that you're doing, the gospel should be shaping that. And, and, and you view the world through the lens of this gospel, not the gospel through the lens of the world. And you see, when we understand this as a church community, real awakening takes place. Revival that is not based upon, revival doesn't come because we name our church after it. We all know that. Revival comes When the gospel takes its root in the heart of God's children, there becomes a deep conviction of our sinfulness and our inadequacies and a deep clinging to Jesus like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I will not let go until you bless me. And until we come with that sort of desperate measure before the throne of God, we will not experience the power that he would have for us. We're we're holding on to filthy rags when he wants to give us eternal riches now. And I believe that with all of my heart.
Are you ready to preach Christ crucified? Together will we preach Christ crucified. The only ground on which the Father can forgive us is the tremendous tragedy of the cross. And the paradox is that upon the cross, Jesus not only satisfied divine judgment so that now God can justify sinners without violating his holiness, so powerful, mind-blowing. If we would take hold of this great truth and together come together as a community of faith and reflect this gospel, I believe that you will see an awakening in this city, in this valley, in this desert. I pray that a new garden would come. I pray that the outpost of God's kingdom on earth would be a big outpost in Temecula and Marietta and Menifee. And I pray that you would take seriously what I've encouraged you to do today. We preach Christ crucified. Say that with me. We preach Christ crucified. Uh, Let's pray.